Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. For the last episode of the second season, Saka Helgeson went solo and did a live recording with Sole Kaldal, a risk analysis specialist and safety engineer at the Icelandic Coast Guard. Sole is also an advisor to Iceland's National Security Council. She is a Fulbright Scholar and Yale 2020 alumni with a Master of Advanced Studies from the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs. She graduated from Lund University in Sweden in 2011 with a master's degree in risk management and safety engineering. For her bachelor's, she completed a double degree in physics and philosophy. Hello everyone and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Saga Helgesen and today I'm going to be talking to Sole Kaldal who works for the Icelandic Coast Guard. So nice to finally have you on Sole. Takk for komu spjalla. Takk for and so the reason our recording was a little bit delayed, because uh, we had been in contact, I think, uh, around February, if I remember correctly. Um, so it was delayed because you've just given birth to twins. Is yes, that right? that's correct. Oh, it's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It was in March, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, and everything has gone, gone well. They're happy and healthy, thank you. <laughs> yeah, perfect. It's so exciting. And now, just to sort of get us started, so you've been at the Icelandic Coast Guard for how long now? Uh, for about four years. Okay. Yeah, I started uh, at the beginning, well, end of 2016. I had been working with them on uh, a special assignment for the Ministry of the Interior the year before. And then I decided the, to join the ranks. Uh, well, I was offered a position there. Um, so I started formally working for them at the end of 2016. And I do uh, risk management and safety engineering for the institution, uh, not on the specifics, not on a specific airplane, but more as a policy related, uh, how can we reduce our response time, where should we position our gear and uh, vessels to better service uh, the country. Wow, a very important job. And then I also do uh, foreign cooperation and mainly focusing on Arctic cooperation. Okay, and that's that, that'll be really cool because that's definitely something that I want to touch on. Could you tell me um, what was it that initially sparked your interest in the Arctic? Right, yeah. I went to school uh, in Sweden, in Lund Technical University, for this risk management engineering degree. So uh, when I was trying to get into my master's uh, program, I was in contact with Dr. Björn Carlson, who at the time was the head of the Department for Fire and Housing Safety. And at the time, there was some interest in possible oil exploration uh, in the Arctic Ocean north of Iceland. And his institution was responsible for uh, risk management and safety measures for any buildings at sea. Or so if there would be uh, an oil rig built, so any fixed object at sea under Icelandic jurisdiction or Icelandic exclusive economic zone uh, would be his responsibility. So he was looking for a PhD student that would be willing to look into the preliminary risk assessment of such, such a structure. 
that might fall under his institution wouldn't be built. So when I finished my master's degree in risk management and safety engineering, uh, I directly entered a PhD program where I was beginning to study that issue. So he kind of drew me into the Arctic focus. I had just a general civil protection, safety and security issues interest, but the Arctic issue became really relevant at that time. Like, how are we going to make sure that if there is a structure built in the ocean around Iceland, that those that work there are safe and the environment is safe from any possible uh, event that might happen. So I began a PhD there. Um, actually, I took part in a lot of European Union funded research projects with other uh, colleagues around Europe. And then I decided not to finish the PhD, but go into a degree at Yale University with Global Affairs, where I would further research Arctic security issues. Very interesting. It's You've been um, yeah, very focused on, on risk management, which maybe you wouldn't automatically associate with, with the Arctic, but, but it'll, and definitely in the future, it'll be much more important, don't yes, you think? Yes, totally. Um, we know that things are changing, and they are changing quite rapidly in the Arctic. Uh, it's sparked by climate change and the melting of the ice cap, but that has a lot of implications, both uh, for nature and for the geopolitical climate, for industries, for fishing, it has such a rippling effect on everything that we really have to start thinking ahead about how things are going to be translating into the future and prepare for it. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And now if we, if we just talk about um, uh, Coast Guards in general, what would you say sort of are the core duties or the core roles that, that Coast Guards serve? I actually conducted a little research project from within the Icelandic Coast Guard because we are uh, we work a lot with other Coast Guards, uh, specifically the Arctic Coast Guards uh, for the Arctic 8, so the other 7. And I did a little research project where I decided to map out each Coast Guard's responsibility. So I listed up all the conceivable responsibility areas of a Coast Guard and then I sent the survey out and said which one of these are your responsibility? And we found out that it's quite diverse. Um, some Coast Guards are responsible for search and rescue and others are not. Some are responsible for environmental response and others are not. Some are in law enforcement, other are maybe uh, fisheries inspection, anti-terrorism, and the list goes on. Um, but this list uh, showed us that search and rescue is the biggest common area that we have and responds to environmental disasters, uh, most likely uh, a big oil leak. And then, of course, uh, some sort of border control because we have our uh, territorial waters where we actually have to manage who comes in and who goes out, at least keep an eye on it. Mm -hmm. So the two, search and rescue and environmental response, are the main areas of cooperation that we have with other Coast Guards and specifically the Arctic Coast Guards. Now you've just mentioned quite a, quite a few, um, should we say, zones of, of responsibility. With the knowledge that Iceland does not have a military, uh, I would assume that, that most of these duties fall under the jurisdiction of the Coast Guard, am I correct in this? Yes, the Icelandic Coast Guard has a lot of roles that uh, militaries or military-affiliated institutions perform for other countries. 
Absolutely. And of course, due to time constraints, we won't be able to discuss every single one of these roles. But I wanted to maybe go a little bit more into what you think is unique about, I guess, the working environment and the capabilities of the Icelandic Coast Guard. What is it that distinguishes the Icelandic Coast Guard from other Arctic Coast Guards? Well, the military angle is, of course, quite unique. We are the only Arctic country that does not have a military. Uh, That does not, however, make us any less robust or willing and able partners. We have a really good Coast Guard, even though I say so myself. We have, for the last 10 years, been the institution in Iceland that the uh, population of Iceland has the biggest belief in or most trust in. So uh, obviously we are doing something right. We are really quite well equipped, uh, considering the smallness of the nation. But when you look at the waters that we have to monitor and protect, we kind of have to have some really good equipment to be able to keep our eyes on this big area. So we as a civilian organization or civilian institution, we are really free from the really strict formalities of a military institution, but we understand how militaries work and because of the close cooperation with uh, our partner nations, the other Nordic states, the US, etc. So I think cooperation goes extremely well and we do not feel that we are any way disadvantaged for not having a military presence here. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the topic of cooperation with other Arctic Coast Guards, who do you collaborate most with on a daily basis? On a daily basis, it would probably be the Danish military. They, in turn, do not have a Coast Guard, but they have the Danish military, specifically the Danish Navy, um, does Coast Guard duties in the waters around the Faroe Islands and Greenland. So they are in our waters in and out quite frequently and we get a situational picture from them and share information with them every day and they have been extremely uh, willing to help in case that we have some events happening where we might need some backup they have been really kindly willing to step in and provide any help that they can so every day we get a report from them and we send information back Then also the other Nordic states, Norway specifically, um, and of course because we have a bilateral defense agreement with the United States, which just celebrated 70 years anniversary, we also have a very close cooperation and good contact uh, with with our colleagues in the U.S. military. Yeah, so it's mostly the, the Arctic states that are closest right, yes. in, in location to Iceland. Yeah. That, that makes sense. And, and just sort of playing um, devil's advocate, you've mentioned, you know, the information sharing, but what other benefits uh, can be derived from Coast Guard collaborations? Is, is it necessary? I believe it is necessary because the Arctic, as I mentioned before, uh, it's kind of the final frontier. It's the only region on this globe that has not been accessible before in any way. And now it's suddenly opening up. And with technological advances, we have better vessels, better airplanes and helicopters to reach the area. So at the same time, it's getting easier to reach. We also have better equipment to reach it. Um, So we predict that 
traffic through the Arctic will increase. Uh, we don't know at what speed. But at the same time, every Arctic nation is struggling to keep up the safety and security standards that they want to uphold in their Arctic regions. Because even though the ice is melting, we still have pretty extreme weathers and we have a lot of darkness, we have icing, we have a world record in wave heights. Uh, so it's a really, really tough area. Um, so we really need to have good equipment, expensive equipment, and not every nation can have that on stock. It would be really expensive and inefficient to keep it for those events that happen, might be one, in, one time in 50 years, or yeah, seldom. So the Arctic cooperation is really important because we are all kind of struggling with keeping our safety levels adequate. So we are in contact very, very frequently. We share information, we share research, we conduct uh, exercises every year. Uh, every other year we have a live exercise and the uh, other year we have a tabletop exercise. And that's just the Coast Guards because we also have exercises with environment agencies and smaller uh, local agencies. And in these uh, pan-Arctic exercises, we just look at what if an event would happen in this specific place in the Arctic, who is closest to it, who will assume uh, on-site command, how quickly can we get our equipment from Iceland maybe to Norwegian waters, who can bring what, who is going to... Uh, run the show and how is the handover if it's a long-term event that's maybe like an oil spill so I believe this is crucial for us to be prepared if something happens because it's practically impossible for any one nation to be fully prepared for a major disaster in the Arctic it's just so big and it's so difficult to navigate Absolutely. And, you know, the whole is bigger than than the one, you know, you work so much totally. better as with the cooperation. And, you know, as you say, even though the, these incidents happen rarely, mm -hmm. you have to be prepared. Yes. And um, uh, I remember being once told a, uh, a quote that was, fail to prepare, then prepare to fail. Totally. Which um, I think definitely applies in this context. Yeah, and the thing about risk management and preparation is that when you do it well, people don't notice it because then you've prepared so well that you either can prevent this disaster or mitigate it very well. If you do not prepare for it, as you say, it will be a total failure. But then people will get really angry and ask, why didn't you prepare for this? The one caveat is that when you prepare really well for it, people are like, oh, you probably don't have to look into that because it never goes wrong. Uh, you're treading then such a fine line because, you know, people will always make criticism of because it's obviously funded by the government. Yes. If the money is spent on what the citizen could argue would be useless. Yes. But but of course it's not useless. It's, <laughs> it's very essential. Yeah. If you experience it as useless, it's probably because we are doing such a good job at making it useless. Mm -hmm. it, it's what happens behind the scenes. Yeah. And sort of talking about uh, the limitations of cooperation though, I mean, I would assume that cooperation among most Coast Guards can only go so far. I mean, Coast Guards or their militaries are dealing with, you know, classified information at times. And so I sort of, my question to you is, are there other factors, 
you know, um, as Coast Guards, they obviously function as upholders of state sovereignty and, you know, the, the jurisdiction and, and so forth. There's always going to be limitation as to how much information can be shared just due to the sensitive nature of their work. Yeah, that's correct. And of course, there are issues that we do not discuss amongst each other. Uh, because as you say, we have classified information and we have to uh, keep certain things to ourselves. But thankfully, the Arctic Coast Guard uh, cooperation mechanisms have been really successful. We have managed to focus on the areas where we certainly can cooperate. And information sharing has not been a problem with search and rescue, with environmental response. And it has gone really well. All the Coast Guards are volunteering information and input into the work. But that's also because we focus on the areas where we know we can cooperate and stay away from areas where it would be more sensitive or political uh, or issues that we are not allowed to fully share information with each other. Um, Also in the Arctic, uh, the United Nations uh, Convention of the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, has quite clear limits on the territorial waters, exclusive economic zones, contiguous zones or high seas. It's quite clear, so we know where we operate. And the search and rescue regions we are working within, these lines are all quite clear. So there is not a big dispute anywhere uh, between the nations on that front. Yeah, so it's about finding the the common ground. And uh, I think you mentioned this, but uh, so the the Arctic Coast Guard Forum is a specific, I guess you could call it a venue for uh, Coast Guards to meet. Could you maybe list some of the, some of its main uh, strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, we just finished our two-year chairmanship of the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, the Icelandic Coast Guard. Uh, it was quite a, a weird chairmanship because we had only been the chair for a year when COVID hit and we had to move all our meetings online. We used to meet twice a year in the host country, the chairmanship country. And it's really great to see the faces, to meet around a table and have very meaty discussions with our colleagues. That went away when you have a global pandemic. And online uh, information sharing can also be a security risk from us, Arctic Aid, where we want to share information with each other and not anybody else. But we managed to adjust to this new reality and it even led to us meeting more frequently because if you don't have to fly for a few hours and book a hotel, we can just say, let's have an Arctic Coast Guard Forum meeting in two weeks. And so this was actually the most frequent meetings that we have had was during the pandemic. And that was really great because we got through some really important issues that we have been working on. And the Arctic Coast Guard Forum was established in 2015. And the main focus of the cooperation until now has been search and rescue, uh, all sorts of areas of search and rescue, um, damage control, mass rescue operation, um, finding a vessel that has gone rogue, all of those things. Uh, But in the Icelandic chairmanship, we really wanted to bring in the environmental response. And then we reached out to, well, there was a mutual uh, will for cooperation with the Arctic Council Working Group EPPR, Emergency Prevention Preparedness and Response, on bringing in the environmental response angle. We decided that 
in the Arctic Coast Guard Forum that we were ready to bring another dimension into our exercises. Um, so we had planned a big live exercise which would start out as a search and rescue exercise and then we would discover a big oil leak and we would have to hand it over to the environmental response teams. We of course couldn't hold the live exercise as planned but we did a tabletop exercise and a virtual exercise on that issue and that was it went really well and was really great cooperation with the Arctic Council Working Group. Uh, so that's a big strength that we had gotten to know each other really well first the Arctic uh, Coast Guards and we have begun to get really deep knowledge of each other's capabilities and now we are bringing in the environmental angle to start learning more about each other's uh, capabilities uh, on that front. It's also, I mean, the Arctic 8 is a diverse group in a way, but every single partner has been a really engaged and yeah, active partnership from all the states. Weaknesses, I think actually the Arctic Coast Guard Forum has been just a really successful venue. We don't try to overextend ourselves and do everything. We try to keep it very focused so that we learn how to cooperate in a specific area instead of trying to spread ourselves too thin and do everything. So I don't really have a comment on a weakness because maybe somebody would say that we are too limited, but I think that's good because we are focused on a specific issue and we want to dive into it and get good at it so that if something happens, we know exactly who to call and how long it's going to take them to get to us. Uh, absolutely. It's um, specialization over just being, you know, having your... having. Um being involved in, in lots of different projects, then you're able to specialize, like you say. Yeah. Now, what do you have to say about geopolitical tensions and security concerns in the Arctic? There's constantly talk about potential geopolitical tensions among Arctic states in the future. And now I know you may not be able to disclose specific information, but is there truth to this? Have you been aware of anything that would bring cause to believe that there are competing interests? Um. As I said before, because the Arctic is kind of a new frontier, uh, so there are opportunities opening up for nations to explore what their options are in specific areas. So of course, I mean, human history has shown that whenever a new area opens up for exploration or exploitation and more than one country is interested, there are always going to be some competing interests. I think we are lucky that we have had such long tradition of international cooperation and we have UNCLOS and we have international agreements on a lot of things. So now we just have to try to show that we are better than we were a hundred years ago or whenever we were competing in other parts of the world. Um, I think it's really normal that uh, both the Arctic nations and other states are interested in seeing how can I use this for, uh, how can we use this for our benefits? Are there high seas areas where we can explore some kind of resource uh, extraction, whatever it might be? Um, as long as, it do as it's done in conjunction, in compliance with international law, I think it's good. I think it's responsible of states to look into, do we have any opportunities there? Uh, it's just if, international law is dropped and some 
states or alliances start acting out of sync, that I think we should be maybe a little bit afraid. Uh, I don't see any direct indication of that happening. Knowing that we're human and knowing our history, it of course could happen. But I really think that we can prevent that from happening and just focusing on um, what we have agreed upon before and how we're going to try to share it as fairly as possible. And obviously the Coast Guard is, is always uh, changing. Uh, the Icelandic Coast Guard was established in 1926, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and, and so I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, obviously the working environment of the Coast Guard has was heavily influenced by the Cold War uh, when it was still ongoing. Obviously, you, you were not working there at the time, but how, how do you think that, uh, that the nature of the Coast Guard's work has changed since the end of the Cold War and maybe since the U.S. left the, the airbase in 2006? Um, when the U.S. left, a lot of security and defense-related tasks fell on the responsibility of the Icelandic government. Uh, projects and tasks that the U.S. had done before now were our responsibility for the first time, really. So after the U.S. military left in 2006, the Icelandic government was responsible for safety, security and defense-related tasks in Iceland. And it took them a couple of years to figure out how to delegate those uh, responsibilities. And they ended up giving the Icelandic Coast Guard the main portion of it. And uh, some portion is, of course, um, with the National Commissioner of the Icelandic Police, and it is conducted by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So the Coast Guard does it on behalf of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, so we have a lot of operations in Keflavik, where the uh, air base used to be, the, the US uh, Air Force base used to be. Um, so now we have a 24-hour surveillance of the airspace, and we have a lot of information sharing with NATO, of course, because we are a NATO partner. So for a while after they left, there was not a lot of interest in the Arctic, uh, but that has been steadily increasing for the last, I don't know, decade, 15 years. So little by little, it has been increasing more and more. Uh, so now the Icelandic Coast Guard assumes uh, a lot of the responsibility that was before in the, on the hands of the U.S. military. Of course, we are in great cooperation still with the U.S. military. They uh, have a presence here uh, once in a while, and we have good dialogue and information sharing with them on a daily basis. One of the things that we used to do when they were here was that they were willing and able to help us in civilian civil protection matters, uh, search and rescue, whether inland or at sea, and all sorts of response events that we might have to undertake. When they went, we had to reinforce our fleet here, uh, the helicopter fleet, and we got a great surveillance aircraft that we used to keep an eye on our waters. But again, now that the Arctic is getting more interesting, in the eyes of the world. We are feeling more interest in the area and we have more information sharing and more cooperation with our partner nations. Now you mentioned the, the surveillance aircraft. I'm quite uh, interested in, in your capabilities. So how uh, what, what is the vessel situation like and the aircraft situation? How many do you have? 
we have one aircraft, TFCF, which is a great uh, surveillance aircraft and it can cover our whole exclusive economic zone in two flights. Um, and it's really important because for, for air traffic, you can use the radar systems that shoot up beams and you get a response back to the radars. Uh, for traffic on the ocean, you can't really do that because radar systems shooting out at sea, they only reach so far. So because that we are an island quite remote and we have a lot of ocean spaces, we have to have our surveillance through an airplane. We could go into the, the drone situation when they are robust enough to tolerate our natural conditions here. And of course we get satellite imaging as well from uh, AMSA, uh, from Europe. Um, but our main mechanism for keeping our eyes on our area is the um, surveillance aircraft that we have, which is really uh, a great piece of mechanism. Is the aircraft, is it used regularly? Uh, like is, is it daily or...? Um, well, the thing is it has been doing some projects for Frontex. Uh, down at the Mediterranean, uh, where we, as a partner in European border control, have a contribution where we send our aircraft down there. When it's in Iceland and not in foreign projects, it's going, yeah, pretty much daily uh, on surveillance trips. And then we have three helicopters, and they do shorter distance surveillance because they are mostly used for response and operations and then we have two vessels and so we always have an OPV uh, offshore patrol vessel on the sea at all times so they take turn going out and the dream of the Coast Guard is that we have actually three vessels so we can have two vessels at sea at any given time because we want to be able to cover one half of the country at a time so that they're both sailing kind of around if one is on the west coast the others on the east coast etc and that will reduce our response time and increase our capabilities quite dramatically and when you when you talk of response times um what is sort of the biggest challenge there i i get i mean i would imagine you know the the search and rescue region uh, that's significantly larger than the eez isn't that correct it's it is. It's, um, I believe it's more than 1.9 million kilometers squared. Yes. So, I mean, that, that, must, that's, that must be a huge challenge to response times. It is, absolutely. And according to the polar code, if I remember correctly, survival time uh, in the Arctic, if you're on a cruise vessel, is supposed to, cruise vessel that has an event happening where they cannot reach shore, is supposed to be five days. And... There has been research done into this five-day rule with the mechanism or yeah survival mechanism that's on board cruise vessels, and it's not really realistic. You cannot survive for five days on a life raft in the Arctic. So, I mean, if you fall into the water in the Arctic, it's a matter of minutes until uh, you are no longer alive. Uh, but we want to try to have our response time much, much less than five days. Uh, it depends on the actual location and the actual event happening. But we have been able to respond and avoid people dying for a really long time. I would imagine that uh, most incidents that, that have occurred, have they been related to fishing vessels? 
Yes, there. I mean, the biggest traffic are fishing vessels and, of course, uh, cargo. But fishing vessels having some running aground have, thankfully, the Coast Guard has been able to save uh, and respond within an acceptable response time for those vessels for a number of years. And it's been really, really increasing the safety of Icelandic seafarers uh, just in the last decades. It, I mean, all Icelanders 50 years ago knew somebody who died at sea, and now that's a really rare occurrence. And hopefully largely thanks to the Coast Guard. <laughs> We hope so. And um, we've talked about response times. Is there is there another challenge that um, that the Coast Guard faces or will face when it comes to emergency search and rescue? Um, I think maybe back to surveillance because keeping up adequate surveillance in such a huge area is always going to be challenging. Um, and considering that we have really cloudy days for days and weeks on end and we have a lot of darkness but we still want to keep our eyes on our ocean spaces so i think surveillance is our uh, is a big challenge it's also preventative if we see that something is happening that is not, not normal some kind of movement or a vessel that is not reporting through ais the automated mm-hmm. uh, information sharing we could respond sooner if we saw it before something happens. So we are really interested in seeing how drone technology is going to progress. And of course, keeping our airplane in the air and keeping our eyes on the ocean is really important to us. And what is the collaboration like with Landsbjörg, uh, which is the umbrella organization for all nonprofit volunteer services in Iceland? What's that like? The Icelandic Coast Guard has uh, great cooperation with ISAR, which is called Landsberg uh, in Iceland. They have an amazing team of people all the way around the country, uh, of really excellent people who can both climb mountains and do all sorts of uh, very challenging rescue work. And they have smaller rescue vessels where uh, the Coast Guard can ask them to step in and assist and sometimes they are the only vessels that go out if it's close enough to shore. So the cooperation there is excellent and we are really lucky here in Iceland to have such an awesome team of people, mostly volunteers, who are willing to drop whatever they're doing and go and save their fellow man. I think that uh, definitely uh, ISAR and, and the Coast Guard are definitely high on on Icelanders' um, sense of pride and and uh, respect, yeah. so I think um, you know the the cooperation um, among you guys is is uh, very much respected. Yes, and, we, and the Coast Guard really appreciates uh, all the great work that they are doing. And I even remember um, vividly. Uh, I think it was in December two thousand and nineteen. There had been a huge uh, winter storm across the north uh, of Iceland, and a lot of towns uh, were. Um, were without electricity, and I think it was, I think it was Thor, the Coast Guard's vessel, that uh, went and supplied electricity to Dalvik, yes. uh, a town in the north. I yeah. think that's I think just for a vessel to be able to supply a whole town with electricity is is pretty cool. Yeah, it's really impressive, and and that's what the Coast Guard wants because we have to keep those really highly technical, robust, robust vessels because of the natural conditions we have here. We want to use them to the fullest extent. So 
whenever there is a natural disaster, the Coast Guard being the only organization or institution in Iceland that has helicopters, that has massive vessels, we want to be able to step in and help in any way. And in Iceland, we're lucky that we have short lines of communication. So uh, the National Commissioner of the Police or the local police or uh, civil protection agency, they know how to reach us and that we're willing and we want to go and be of any assistance that we can. So I guess in a way, in, in this case, our, um, our, our small size can is helping to, yeah. to our advantage in, in terms of response times and, and effectiveness in the chain of command. Totally. And also, I think, um, obviously, the, the most recent example with both uh, the rescue services and the Coast Guard is our volcanic eruption yes. at Fajratal And the Coast Guard has uh, done a lot of uh, very important work where the helicopter has taken uh, scientists, volcanologists to fly over. Mm-hmm. And we are also used, uh, as before, the surveillance aircraft has been used previously by volcanologists and geologists to fly over possible eruption sites to uh, use the radars on the airplane to see if there is any indication of an imminent uh, eruption. So the Coast Guard is also really doing a lot of tasks inland as well in cooperation and under the control of other uh, Icelandic institutions. And this is obviously very unique to Iceland's surroundings. This is not, you know, probably the most uh, common thing to happen in Norway or, no. or, or other Arctic states, but, but I think it's fantastic how large of a role the Coast Guard has to play in, in these sort of natural disasters that are unique to Iceland. Yeah. And now sort of with future challenges and with the opening of new sea routes mm-hmm. and increasing levels of maritime traffic and maritime tourism, like you've mentioned, like with the cruise ships, how will the Icelandic Coast Guard be able to meet uh, increasing levels of maritime traffic in the future? I think we will be really prepared and happy to take the challenge of more traffic. I mean, the thing about a safety security institution like the Coast Guard, where we're really trying to uh, keep up an adequate level of safety, we have to be one step ahead. We cannot allow the traffic to come and then increase our safety. It has to happen in lockstep. I mean, and then again, we come to, it's not a really sexy investment to invest in safety or security because you can't really see it happening. But if we are going to have more traffic, we are going to have to expand the Icelandic Coast Guard capabilities. We might have to have, um, we have our headquarters here in Reykjavik, but we have um, a lot of activity in Keflavik, as I mentioned. We might have to have some operational hub uh, in the northeast of the country. That would be great as well. And I think even timely now. So if we are willing to invest in the safety and security of those that are going to be using these new sea roads, I think the Icelandic Coast Guard is uh, very much so up for the challenge. And, and I guess you'll also be even more reliant on, on Arctic cooperation with, with other Coast Guards. Absolutely. And I mean, there are even talks that we might have some sharing of vessels that are navigating across the Arctic, we might share each other's burden on some kind of a calendar or schedule. So that's just, it's an exciting time. And But most of all, we hope that the sea ice doesn't completely go away because that's not good news for anybody. But in any way that we can uh, safely and responsibly 
use the opportunities found uh, in those new sea routes, whether it's because we have better equipment, um, the Coast Guard will be there and making sure that uh, those traveling are safe. Absolutely. So we're starting to wrap up now. What are the what are the Icelandic Coast Guard's main strengths? Would you say just to sort of summarize? I think um, because we do so many different tasks, I think we are really uh, multifaceted and flexible. And as we've discussed earlier, sometimes it's good to be capable at many things, and sometimes it's better to be focused on having an expertise in one thing. Both things can be good and bad. So we are a really flexible and dynamic institution and all of our staff members, all of my colleagues are just people who are really used to putting on different hats based on which day it is. Oh, it's an eruption today or, and then it's a certain rescue at sea tomorrow. Um, so I think that's the biggest strength of the Icelandic Coast Guard and just the willingness, the really true willingness to go and help people and make sure that everything's going to be okay. I think that's the biggest strength. Um, the weakness is of course uh, related to the theme that we've been talking about that uh, we have to have the adequate equipment and the adequate staff numbers mm -hmm. to take on all these different challenges and if they are increasing we have to simultaneously increase the capabilities of the institution. It has to happen in lockstep. And that I guess is also a question of funding. Yeah. from the government yeah and for the government they have a lot of <laughs> things they have to prioritize is it healthcare? is it border control is it education is it safety so i understand that it's they have to find the balance there but it's uh, really important that we keep as an island nation that's totally relying on air travel and um, and sailing for almost anything like everything we import it has to go over the sea or through air and that's the area that the Icelandic Coast Guard is keeping safe so it, we really have to keep in mind that funding a, a strong institution that takes care of safety in these spaces is a priority and what about sort of the challenges for the future um, uh, where do the challenges lie ahead uh, one of the main challenges that I see as a risk management and safety engineer is I like to look at history to predict what's going to happen. And now we can't do that because we're entering a new phase. Uh, climate change is really changing a lot. Not only the nature and our building structure and our societal structure and our job structure, but also geopolitically. So, I mean... Quick changes are always uh, risky in a way. So not knowing what is going to happen, um, whether it's nature or geopolitics is of con a concern to me. And I think that's the biggest challenge, trying to foresee what is going to happen so that we can prevent the bad things and, and foster the good things. I think that's an excellent point that you make because you're in risk management, so you're always thinking in terms of different scenarios and we just haven't haven't seen this before That's right. and and we just don't know what what will happen so you've got to I guess you have to be extra imaginative <laughs> right yeah it's time for being creative yeah and uh on a light note uh what do you enjoy most about working at the coast guard the most exciting thing is that every day is different 
we have so many interesting projects and tasks and things we have to look into. I have really excellent colleagues. It's so much fun to work in an institution where I come more from academia, but I'm working with somebody who is hanging down from an helicopter like twice a week. <laughs> and another person who is sailing a, a huge vessel in the Arctic and we're all sharing our vision on a specific problem set and we all bring such different thought to it. And so the diversity uh, of the people working at the Coast Guard is, I think, one of the best parts about it. That sounds like a, an attractive place to work for. Totally is. Oh well, I'd just like to thank you very much, Sole, for coming. It's been so exciting to meet you in person because so far I've only been taking interviews with people uh, online, of course due to COVID, but also because we are in the same country. Thank you, likewise. Um, yeah, just thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you, you too.